Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific. It's not just the ripping off part. It's the just, it's just, it's become really dishonest, I think, the whole system. You know, you've got a lot of doctors that basically can't actually communicate with their patients, can't do what they know is right for their patients for fear of losing their jobs and their licenses. And it's just become this incredibly coercive environment that advantages insurance companies and big pharma. And, you know, if you're a doctor, like, with a conscience, (laughs) I mean, I don't know how you can... I don't know how you can like just sit back and be okay with that. It's got to bother a lot of people. Yeah. I, I, what I like most about this, don't know if it's perfect yet, probably has a lot of learning to do, but it sees a broken system and it doesn't just complain about the broken system. It, and it doesn't even try to go into the broken system and lobby for correcting it using the tools of the broken system. It just steps outside and says, okay, well, we're going to try to build something that isn't tied down. We're just going to try to build the best thing we possibly can using, and the spirit of it really is, is watching out for your neighbor, right? For your fellow man who might, who might come down with a health condition, an unforeseen health condition. And so that we all pull our resources together, but we don't do it through some overregulated, maximally profit-seeking, highly bureaucratized system, which is what's led to what we think is a bit of a broken system. So we just do it with logic and intuition and goodwill, if I understand correctly what they're doing there. Hit the nail on the head, Tomer. Thanks for your support as always, Swan folks. You bet, brother. It's all part of closing the loop, right? We need to close the loop. We need to have a fully circular Bitcoin economy. You know, it's, you've got all these different initiatives starting up that offer a way for people to do that. And uh, it's absolutely necessary. I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah, amen. And, you know, healthcare is a $4 trillion piece of this economy. So if we can integrate Bitcoin into that, that part of the economy. I think there's, that goes a long way to the widespread adoption that I think we all will want. So it's, it's doing great. And, you know, we um, have not announced this yet, but we did raise a, an A round last Friday, um, an additional $6 million to help us grow. Um, so we have not announced that you're the, the first to hear it, um, but it's pretty exciting. So that'll put us through probably into 2025 for sure in terms of, of runway. Um, so fired up about, you know, continuing the, the journey here. 
So just uh, three billion nine hundred ninety-nine or three nine hundred ninety-four million dollars to go. There you go. <laughs> I got that wrong. Just another three trillion nine hundred ninety-nine billion nine hundred ninety-four million to go. I left out the trillions. Good morning, hey, good morning. Aunt. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Alex. By the way, doing? Uh, doing really good. I just wanted to congratulate you uh, publicly, Ant, on getting time chain stats up on lop.net. That's pretty cool. Good stuff. Well deserved. Hey, thanks. That's timechainstats.com. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I, I'll just share real quick the, uh, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the extra sweet spot for me with it is that this wasn't the first try. Like I tried early on in one of the early iterations uh, of the site to have it added. And the response was uh, that that site, lob.net, was for reserved for like basically sites that added real value to the community. And it was like crush. Like, <laughs> I mean, I had my little site and I was just like, you know, like, wow. But, you know, went back to the drawing board, kept tinkering with it. I mean, that wasn't the goal to get on lop.net, but it's, it's like, keep working at it, keep building it, you know, don't, don't let it, you know, don't let a little bit of failure knock you down. And then next thing you know, here we are fast forward to the future and then boom, not only is time chain stats up there, but he also added BTC lexicon and he put it on getting started. So when you go to the site and you go getting started, BTC lexicon is right there under terms and definitions. Pretty awesome. So thank you very much. Keep trying. Yeah, right. That's awesome, though, man. Proud of you. It's great stuff. You have finally done something worthy. <laughs> now, if only my mom can understand, you know, like like uh, the, the benefit of having that. But it, it's good. It's a really good thing. Send her my way. I'll, uh, I'll clue her in. Um, so this stack chain thing, for those of you who don't know, a group of Bitcoiners started this thing where one Bitcoiner bought a dollar's worth of Bitcoin and then the next one bought $2 and then $3 and then $4, so uh, on and so, on. Th so forth, so forth, creating Arizona a stack. I believe bought $5 to start and then it was $6. Okay, fair enough. The, the principle is the same, right? So they're creating this thing they call the stack chain. And some people are like, oh, my God, this is horrible OPSEC. But other people are like, this is awesome. We're going to pile in here, buy a bunch of Bitcoin. I think it's really cool. Uh, I just wanted to point out that, that when this first came up, Peter said, yeah, I'm staying a million miles away from this thing because – and um, which, which block do you own now, Peter? Proud owner, 989. <laughs> Outstanding. You can tell because it's in my name if you click on me. Yep. Well, if you're going to own a block, you might as well put it in your name. I mean, what would be the point? So this teaches us that people named Peter can eventually come around. This is this is true, Tomer. And and the reality is, it's actually it's actually silly and fun, um, but also um, a learning experience at the same time. Well, <laughs> the, the most hilarious part is, is that humans are essentially trying to organize a blockchain 
without forks and it's all being done by human coordination versus oh no 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 there are forks alex yeah uh, that's what i'm saying is they're, they're trying to avoid that if possible but i mean it happens right probably a lot I just think the whole thing is absolutely funny. Hilarious. Uh, good morning, Greg Foss. Also, um, want to shout out to Paul Tarantino in the audience throwing you an invite if you want to come up. I know you're also probably working, but if you have a chance, you're welcome. What's up, Greg? Hey, guys. Good morning. Uh, thanks for inviting me up. Um, hey, look, uh, Briefly, I'm very pumped to listen to Dr. Jeff Ross uh, talk, uh, so I'll be listening for that. But I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Jeff Booth, who wrote a an article that appeared on Medium.com last night uh, that I need to promo it because he's uh, pretty humble and he doesn't. And as you know, I'm a huge fan of his book. I do believe his book is one of the best books I've ever read called The Price of Tomorrow. Well, he just wrote a medium.com article called Finding Signal in a Noisy World, okay? Uh, he talked to me about it while we were in Madeira together, um, visiting the president of Madeira. But this article, people, is absolutely brilliant to the core. It's a Jeff Booth masterpiece. Um, I really would uh, uh, in, uh, encourage everybody to read it. But the one thing I want people to, I don't want anything. The thing that I would hope that people focus on is uh, uh, something that Jeff calls the blockchain trilemma. Okay, and it's from the firm that he's uh, the venture capital firm he is uh, uh, sponsoring. Um, but it's the blockchain trilemma where you have basically three sides of a triangle: uh, secure being one uh, in an isosceles triangle, uh, uh, decentralized being the other side, and scalable being the third. And all that you can have in uh, a blockchain is two out of three. So in other words, you can be secure and scalable, but you can't be decentralized. Or you can be secure and decentralized, but you can't be scalable, okay? So the beautiful thing about this is it defines so many things in the world that we are wrestling with right now at layer one uh, blockchain. And I'm not a techie guy, uh, uh, well, nearly as techie a guy as Jeff is. I uh, just wanted to make that shout out. Um, I'm very excited to, he's given us permission to post it on lookingglasseducation.com. So this will be a featured uh, uh, leg of our stool, if you will. But only, only Jeff Booth can break it down in such beautiful, simplistic terms. And uh, my shout out to a fellow Canadian, Jeff Booth. Uh, shout out to another fellow Canadian, Tomer. He actually references you there, Tomer. I'm not sure if you rev, uh, I've read, read the. I've read the piece. Yeah, it was really, really nice. Uh, it was just my soldier <laughs> article, um, uh, so I read the piece as well, Greg. Thank you for for bringing it up. If you want to finish some comments, I have maybe one or two other additional comments to make on it besides what you were saying. No, no, go ahead, please. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I, I think yesterday I mentioned the Lynn Alden's article that's on the Swan blog. I think these pieces are very complimentary and both of these brilliant thinkers patient communicators have have painted a similar story 
but it's complementary. It's like you won't read one, read the other, and say, "Gee, these two people are repeating the same thing." But what you just spoke about, Greg, that uh, Jeff highlights that there's a trade-off between scalability and also having simultaneously um, the the other, the other factors, security, and oh, gee, my brain is skipping a beat, so I've forgotten what the other element is. At the decentralization. Moment. Decentralization. And Lynn makes a po- the similar point, but using a different model, where she just says, you, you know, you have to build the foundation properly, and Bitcoin built on its layer one these similar things and is scaling on the higher layer. And Jeff is making the same point. And both of them take different approaches to then seeing why there's so much noise in the world. Lynn distills it in a, like four quick bullet points, contrasting Bitcoin to everything else is, that is going on. Jeff has a very, um, Jeff coming from the venture capital side, sees why there are so many initiatives that come up. And he's not, he's not playing the blame game saying everyone's intentionally scamming. He's, he's saying some people are, but, but a lot of people are confused. And a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs are confused. A lot of uh, investors are confused. And the, the ultimate point that he makes is if you build something on a chain or an initiative that isn't decentralized and secure, it will ultimately fall apart. And that's, and that's why he's saying, you know, the patience and time that it takes to build something that's decentralized and secure, which is Bitcoin, is why he, his thesis at the end of the day is that Bitcoin will win, that there's no need for a second Bitcoin, and that all these other things, no matter how fancy they are, if they're built on top of a quicksand foundation, I think that's the analogy he uses, they will sink. And um, so it's worth a read. Uh, there's just a lot of really thoughtful stuff coming out right now, and I think it's, it's pushing new, um, new insights into where the direction is really headed with, with the industry as a whole and with Bitcoin specifically within it, which, which I think both, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think that both, if they had to place odds, they'd say at the end of the day, Bitcoin is the industry. So Tomer, um, and I see wicked your hand up and I, uh, sorry, but um, what I, you know, perhaps I didn't get the message across. So thanks for adding that. When, when we're at Madeira and Madeira gets flooded by shit coiners, okay? Because when they announce at the Bitcoin uh, conference that they're going to consider integrating Bitcoin in their economy, uh, the boat, uh, big yacht of one of the Bitcoiners turned shit coiner, I can't, uh, Pierce Brock or whatever his name is, or somebody, Brock Pierce, uh, shows up and is parked in the bay in Madeira when we're there. And his whole focus is to try and say, hey, Bitcoin's not it. It's a, it's a shit, you know, replace it with the shit coin. So um, this is a piece that you can hand to people, um, thoughtful leaders that uh, understand, you know, hopefully this will help them understand the difference between Bitcoin and shit coins. And he breaks it out so eloquently from, you know, talking about TCP IP, uh, internet protocol, uh, and then the second layer, uh, essentially, and then the third and fourth layers, which are now all built on top of TCP IP uh, and the um, HTTPS, et cetera. But look, or HTTP, um, I'm outside of my area of expertise only to say that this is the type of thing you hand to a leader 
And yesterday, uh, Max and Stacy on uh, a podcast were talking about how Bukele is uh, staying the course with Bitcoin and not going down the uh, uh, the 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 road of the blood coin like that's appeared in in Africa and etc. And that's a big battle. Uh, so anyway, just a great piece. I'm going on mute. Um, and uh, thanks, uh, thanks for listening. I was just going to comment real quick um, when we're talking about those three properties, scalability, decentralization, and security. If you have to pick two for your, you know, layer one, it makes a lot of sense that you would pick decentralization and security because scalability is really the only one that you can actually achieve on a second layer. Like it wouldn't make sense <laughs> to try to implement security on a second layer or decentralization on a second layer. Those are things that need to be optimized on the first layer. That's a great point. It's a great point. If you want to just help people think that through, right? Like if you have, if you don't have security on the base layer, but you try to implement it on the second layer, people can pull the rug out from under you by pulling the rug out on the base layer and whatever security you thought you had on the second layer, the, the bottom floor of the building, if someone can pull that out from under you, it doesn't help to be on a secure second floor because it's coming crashing down. And the same about decentralization. If you think you have a decentralized second layer, but someone's in control of the first layer, well, it, it speaks to the security issue. If they pull the rug out from you on the first layer, then mm -hmm. you've lost your decentralization. So scalability becomes this optional thing that you that you need to build because you know, we can't be money for the world. Bitcoin can't be money for the whole world if it's only limited to seven transactions per second. But things have to come in an order and trade-offs exist. And what both Lynn and Jeff are basically pointing out in their article is this is why it takes time. You have to, you have to build the base layer with these fundamental features of security and decentralization. Bitcoin's the first time, Jeff, Jeff makes this point quite explicitly, it's the first time in history that we've had decentralization at a base layer that's unimpeachable. And that, I, that is really, like, that's a really groundbreaking, first time in history invention in the field of money and governance. And let's contrast that so people understand the difference, for example, between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like, my understanding is Vitalik is kind of poo-poo on lots of small operators running nodes. Kind of likes this idea of large operators running nodes. So they have this massively centralized system that basically relies on AWS and Infura, if I'm saying that correctly, MetaMask, all these other things that are basically centralized. And like we're seeing the results, the potential results of that. He's basically owned at this point. And and anybody can control that thing now. Well, Am I not missing anybody, something but there? Not not anybody. You and I can't control that. No, thing. what I mean is but, yeah, it, but power by anybody. If the government were to come in like they did basically uh yesterday. they've sanctioned yeah, yesterday they sanctioned tornado. Uh, and they're doing a bunch of little things around that. But if they were to come after MetaMask and Infura and all that other kind of stuff, they would basically own the Ethereum network, no? Well, they, they did come after Infura. I hope I'm not misspeaking, so someone correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of the So there is this site, and I'm not an expert at it, but I'm just trying to follow the headlines, that is, was a tumbler, a mixer, an anonymizer for Ethereum. 
and all at once the government had uh, Microsoft, which runs GitHub, which is where the code repository is, eliminate the code, <laughs> delete the code, suspend the accounts of the developers. Uh, and also today I read that Infura is censoring or forbidding that code from running on its platform. So this is, this is, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos said something really wise <laughs> in the earliest announcement days of Ethereum, because its, its slogan was run unstoppable code. And Andreas asked the question, what kind of code are you running if you need for it to be unstoppable, right? You're not playing Space Invaders. You're running code that somebody wants to stop and you want them to not stop it. And so you need for the infrastructure, like, like maybe it's a tumbler that maybe some party that's out of favor with the government is going to want to use to anonymize their coins, which is exactly what this uh, situation is. But if you don't have decentralization, this is to Jeff Booth's thesis, and you've traded it off for scalability, which is what Ethereum did. They have a very big blockchain, which can process more transactions per second, but they don't have decentralization. And they need to run on centralized services like Infura and Amazon. Then it turns out any code can be stopped. I think this is a very serious issue. And it's, it, you know, it, it, this shouldn't just be Bitcoiners going, ha ha, we've, we've demonstrated uh, a flaw in Ethereum because this isn't the first time and it's not the last time. Something like that's going to happen. But it's Yeah, but you're not going to fix it from within the system. No, you can't. I, I, like Ethereum is not, nobody's really even trying to fix this aspect of Ethereum to make it decentralized at the base layer. They're, mm. they're seeking that's not, that's not what I mean, scale. Tomer. What, what I was yeah. saying is if they can, if they can shut, them, shut them down at the GitHub level and then suspend their accounts, that's a problem. That's a single point of failure. So this, but that doesn't shut down. Like, I, I want to run a scenario, and I don't mean to interrupt you. So finish your thought, and I'll. Uh, no, that's pretty much where I was going with it. Is, is that um, anything that is centralized enough where it can be attacked as a single point of attack? That is a weakness in the system. So I'm not sitting here gleefully jumping up and down that that Ethereans are getting screwed because I don't agree, obviously that it's okay to do all that stuff, but it's going to happen, right? You have to assume it's going to happen. You have to assume that any weak link is going to be attacked with the full force of a state level attack. Right, okay. So this is where I was gonna go with this. So there's basically been a state level attack on this protocol, this tornado thing. And the, and the government didn't just attack at one choke point, they went, they went after GitHub, they went after the developers' accounts, they went after Infura. What shut down the system was that they went after Infura. They also went after, they went after anyone that looked like a single point of failure. Let's just imagine, this is a thought experiment. Let's say tomorrow the government wants to shut down the whole industry. So they tell Microsoft, delete all the code from all the GitHub repositories of all the crypto projects, including Bitcoin. They tell Amazon, stop running all the projects that are running on Amazon, whether it's if you're as a customer of Amazon or somebody else, what happens? Well, I think the overwhelming majority of these systems cease to function immediately, but not Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin runs on individual, Bitcoin blocks are discovered by individual miners spread out all over the world. If they come after some industrial miners, we'll have a two to three week period of slower blocks, but then the difficulty adjustment will 
adjust so that those individuals and foreigners who are still running Bitcoin mining will continue to mine. Of course, my node, your node, everybody else's node will continue to work. We'll continue to be able to broadcast transactions. They can shut down all of Amazon. None of us are dependent on Amazon to run. And so this is this is concretizing the example of how crucial decentralization actually is and what makes Bitcoin so special that both Lynn and Jeff are talking about in their respective articles. It can't be shut down. Like we might have trouble pushing out new releases, but we don't need a new release of Bitcoin, right? It works. Nobody is saying, oh my God, there's there's it an works. upgrade coming in a month. And if we don't all upgrade, the difficulty bomb is going to kick in and stop the system from running. And the insanity, the insanity of, of modifying a plane in flight just never, it, <laughs> it's always seemed like a really, really stupid idea. Bitcoin's been working essentially for the most part flawlessly for 13 years now, TikTok next block. And the, the transaction speed thing has been solved with lightning. So that's, uh, that, to me, that is, um, that's, that's pretty amazing. There's now this list. It's the OFAC SDN list. I'm not sure what the SDN part stands for, but apparently it's blacklisted all these different Ethereum addresses, which is funny because, well, I guess it's not funny. It's horrible, but it's ironic to me because I suppose they could do the same thing with Bitcoin, but I mean, how do they enforce that? I don't know. So they already have, they already have done this with Bitcoin. Um, Have they? Good morning, Harry, by the way. Oh, good morning, Alex. How are you? I'm great. Keep going. Um, so, so they've already done this with Bitcoin. So it, it's really important to think about um, the technological underpinnings of this type of an attempt, um, essentially just at, at sanctioning, right? So what they've done in the case of, of Bitcoin is they've essentially said, you know, we think we've identified these Iranian addresses. We've got broad sweeping um sanctions against against a bunch of the Iranian banking system. And we're including what we believe is is um, this list of um, expubs associated with these, you know, this list of users. And that behavior resembles very closely what is already happening with um, the sanctioning of bank accounts. Right. So the 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 sanctioning of a, of a, a Bitcoin address and the sanctioning of a bank account is a very similar enforcement action um, that got taken by, um, you know, by these, by these, uh, uh, you know, government enforcement agencies. What's different about the tornado cash instance, which is very interesting, is that it is not, is that they're essentially, they're sanctioning um, a software program because there's a certain, you know, number of, of code execution behaviors on the backside of a smart contract associated with the with the with the address um and so it's different because they're not sanctioning the individual relationship between a person or an entity um and an asset they're trying to sanction the computer program irrespective of the user and irrespective of the um of the recipient there is no recipient there's a you know the recipient of you know let's just say they're gonna for for the case of tornado cash they're gonna mix eth Right. The ETH gets sent to the tornado cash, quote unquote, address, which is really just um, a contract. And then the contract engages in um, a number of different you know, executions of the code. And then the Ethereum that comes out on the other side of the mix is distributed back to individuals. 
what the enforcement is happening against is against the computer program. It's not actually happening against the sender or the ultimate receiver. And so it's it's this subtle nuance that's happening um, that's very, very different than what's happened in, in the attempts at putting Bitcoin addresses on the OFAC list. Um, it's a it's a much more subtle and much more nefarious um, implementation of enforcement. Right. But what, what I was getting at, what my question was, is that in Bitcoin, how would you on a practical, on a practical level, how would you enforce something like that? Like if someone has Bitcoin at a certain address and they want to spend it directly with somebody else, how do they stop that from happening? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult, right? So, you know, even if you wanted to take a, a pretty aggressive approach and try to censor, you know, inclusion of transactions in blocks, like there's a bunch of miners that are outside of the jurisdiction of whatever law enforcement body is, is attempting to, to, to censor in this type of way. So, you know, that's the, you know, there, there is, there is adequate decentralization um, along a number of different, you know, vectors um, that would avoid this type of behavior. We, we, we all agree, obviously, that, that Bitcoin is the best designed and the best implemented in order to avoid this type of, um, this type of enforcement action. But, but it, you know, to me, it's, it's much more of the Sun Tzu moment of, of better trying to understand my, you know, my enemy than trying to understand um, anything else that, that we're seeing new behavior. And anytime you see new behavior, like, of course, this is happening. Of course, this is how this is playing out across a central, you know, a centralized ecosystem masquerading as a decentralized ecosystem. Um, yeah, that exactly is the point. That exactly is the point. Because so here there's a big difference between creating a an uh, a law or a regulation or a so-called enforcement action than in actually enforcing it right those are two different things so you know like the way i think about it is is that like they wouldn't have done it if they didn't think that there was some kind of leverage they could apply otherwise you're just like making announcements for no purpose so that's a that's a very interesting aspect of it is that if it wasn't centralized enough for them to actually take some action against, there'd be no point in doing it. It's kind of like a, a circle jerk thing. I, I want to add one thing to give a very technical answer, but the easy to understand answer to your question, Alex. Like, what would it take to censor an address in Bitcoin? It would take a 51% attack. Like, it, because as long as there's some miner somewhere that's willing to mine. Let's say it's your address. Let's say they don't like you, Alex, and they know your address and they don't want you to be able to send your Bitcoin. And they say, don't allow, don't mine Alex's Brad transactions in a block. And so the only way that they could actually prevent that from getting added to the blockchain is if someone did mine your, your transaction into a block to erase that block by not mining honestly at the tip of the chain, but by redoing that block. And for people who understand how Bitcoin works, the only chance you have at actually successfully sustaining something like that is with more than 51% of the hash rate. This reminds me of a guy we haven't seen in a little while, Jason Lowry, who's pointing out this is why something like Bitcoin is a matter of strategic importance because governments want to ensure that they can't be censored from transacting. And as long as they have between like parties, as long as no one government has more than 51% of the hash power, no government can actually enforce censorship on Bitcoin. Whereas, let's imagine we move to a proof of stake system 
what you will see is those who are enforcing the proof of stake, who, those who are enforcing government restrictions and proof of stake will fork off and will make an argument that their version of the chain is the legitimate one. And it'll just be public relations. It won't be the protocol will fix it. Like in Bitcoin, if some government, if some, if somebody runs, ignores blocks that contained your address in it, they'll simply be irrelevant to the network. They might discover a block that's four blocks behind the time. Your node, my node, every other node in the world will just ignore it. Hey, hey Tomer. Yeah, yeah, go Tomer, ahead. Tomer, to put it into perspective for, for people who um, in the audience, including myself, who maybe aren't as technically inclined, currently, what would it take for a government to be able to attain 51% of mining? Well, they'd have to have more mining hash power than all the rest of the network combined. And right now, it is um, the last estimate I saw, like from the Bitcoin Mining Council, was that Bitcoin consumes roughly uh, 15 one hundredths of 1% of the entire output of human energy, which is some people try to say it's small, some people try to say it's too huge. It's a lot. Like, you know, it, it's, it's more than it's more than one one thousandth of all the energy in the world. So if you imagine there's 7 billion people, just assume we all had uh, the same amount. It's the amount of energy that 7 million people consume, if I've got that right. So it's, um, it's not, and you need all the hardware to support it. So it's, it's not an insignificant thing. It's like you have to build a city. To, what's a city that has 7 million people in it, right? Uh, a modern city. It's, you know, it's probably something to that equivalent that you have to dedicate just to mining Bitcoin adversely and, and you have to stay ahead of everybody else I mean, if people start adding horsepower elsewhere now the other thing that and andreas has a good video about this is if someone tried to execute such an attack the defense mechanism for bitcoiners would be to change the hashing algorithm and effectively render all of the hashing equipment bricked and say it's all irrelevant because we're now <laughs> we're now doing triple shot so the single shot that attack would not would not be sustainable essentially well i mean it's it's a nasty look it's a very expensive and this is why andreas dismisses it and i think that he, he's right in that it would be a hugely expensive attack that could not be sustained but would require the network rebuild its hash rate from scratch separately and it could be a back and forth. You know, you could have yeah, a very committed state going back and forth. But it's it's very hard to sustain. It's very expensive. You want to talk about wasteful, right? People say Bitcoin wastes energy. This is exactly why it doesn't waste energy because it requires someone to waste even more energy to to try to stop it in a way that they can't stop it. Attacking well, as a, as a human being, I mean, if you just ask yourself the question, what's more important: money that retains its value that no one else can control that I can spend when I want? instead of having to get somebody else's permission. Like I saw this thing today. I think it was um, Humble posted this. It's a picture of a flyer where it's Nat West Bank basically saying, you can't take your own money out unless you give us really damn good reasons. We want to see all the paperwork. We want to see the invoices. We want to see everything. Or you can't take your own money out of the bank. It's like, do you really want to live in a world like that? What's more important to you? Dryers or safe money, honest money? What's more important to you? Halloween costumes or safe money, honest money. What's more important? I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. All the different examples of things that you consume more energy than the Bitcoin network. Let's go with Wicked and then Paul. Yeah, so I had <clears throat> a comment and then a question. So comment was, um, can we, you know, can we stop with this 
seven transactions per second nonsense. I mean, I'm looking at the blockchain right now, and there are a handful of transactions that have a thousand outputs, which to me <laughs> is a thousand transactions in one. Right? I mean, th this is this is probably like a a withdrawal transaction from a exchange that's servicing you know a thousand. You want you want to talk Complete about nonsense. There's you want to talk about transactors happening per second. Yeah. yeah, transactors. Yeah, which is really what's what matters most. But anyways, because that's 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 kind of like a side point. Who cares? All right. The the question was, um, is, is there anything that Bitcoin developers or the community is doing um, to you know, make uh, kind of like a clone or copy of the GitHub repository in other places in case there were some attack? on uh that repo of course yeah apparently that's already happening like uh there's apps you can stick on an umbral i guess i don't know there's there's other ones doing that i'm not saying i keep a copy just in case but i'm not saying i don't and i i'm not a developer but just keeping copies of the source code uh that can be recompiled and re-uploaded is uh, two things real quick impossible by any stretch of the imagination it's rather trivial. I'm so sorry I love listening in the morning I really really do I have to jump in on two things um, the most recent thing just there there's a difference between Git and GitHub GitHub is a centralized platform Git is an open protocol for uh, versioning software so what happens is, is when GitHub is shut down that doesn't mean the code is gone. It just means the centralized repository where all the people that interact with that code is not accessible. What people who normally every day interact with the code have on their own computers is a full version of the same Git history. Every single person who participates on that open source network has basically the most recent version that they have synced. So you can imagine right now, if for some reason, Bitcoin's GitHub went down, every single core developer who has the most recent sync of the software there has got the entire code base on their local computer. So this is a, a feature of Git that makes it incredibly anti-fragile. It's just GitHub, these centralized repository systems that are being threatened by this kind of action. So there's several ways that git protocol can be spun up again on another centralized service or somebody mm. figures See, out that's the thing that i was gonna but, exactly but that's, that's what, that's what people are you. questioning right so so you can keep spinning up that centralized thing in different places but people are also interested in looking at figuring out more decentralized ways to manage it but the point that's is, is that the, the point is is that the protocol itself is decentralized in the in the way that every single person who interacts with it has got the most recent full version of that software so the software doesn't just disappear just because the centralized node goes away centralized node is like a coordinator anyways uh the mm. second thing is is to the question the 51 percent attack uh you did mention hardware tomer but that's really the 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 crux of the 51% attack and what makes it so unreasonable. There's a website that tracks the, the cost in dollars to 51% Bitcoin. And it's basically this hypothetical, okay, if all these ASICs were for sale, this is how much it would cost. The fact is, and, and we know that there's a uh, shortage of chips out there and it's not so easy to come up with a number of 
you know, ASICs equal to the entire hash power of the rest of the network. It's pretty much impossible. So the biggest bottleneck is not the energy consumption. It's the hardware. It's the it's setting up a, a facility. It's having like all this stuff actually put together and running. And then even if you did that, if you had 51%, all it means is you've got just better than a coin flip chance of winning each block. It doesn't mean you can actually sustain an attack. If you wanted to sustain an attack, you'd need much more than 51%. So as you can see, when you really understand what actually would impact Bitcoin and actually have a chance at threatening the, the future uh, record of blocks to be able to censor out particular addresses or something like that, it's uh, increasingly totally unfeasible when you consider how much hardware you need to acquire and the fact that you need much more than 51% and you'd have to sustain that. That's all. About the um, <clears throat> centralization of, of the GitHub thing. So assuming somebody's got a copy of it or lots of people have a copy of it, if you put it back on a centralized service, that's attackable again, right? So Yeah, I mean, it's basically like you've got a full copy of the entire history of the code changes. Uh, every single participant, when they pull from the repo, they get that history for whichever repository. So, so wouldn't, it, wouldn't it make sense if somehow like, you know, Bitcoiners running nodes could run a, a copy, a decentralized copy of something and, and turn it into a, a decentralized GitHub kind of thing that would be less susceptible to this kind of thing? Well, so I, I guess the point is, is Git is already, in a sense, decentralized. It's, it's, the, it's the central coordinating aspect, which I'm not aware of. There's an instance somewhere that is fully decentralized. And that's, again, this sort of tricky thing where you have... A source of truth and you want to maintain that in a decentralized way and as we know with bitcoin that's only really achievable because of proof of work and because the source of truth content is so lean like the information about bitcoin transactions is the data is so small so it's a challenge but it's just good yeah, to know that even if they shut down the github for Bitcoin, that does not destroy the code of Bitcoin. Yeah, that's not what I'm getting get at. What, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, okay, if if I'm the state and I want to attack Bitcoin, all I have to do is shut down the GitHub repository for for Bitcoin, and then you spin it up again, and I, I shut it down. I mean, I could attack right. that over and but over and over again. All, what I'm all, trying all to get do, to is, what's the solution to that attack vector? So, so just to be clear, all you manage to do is stop further development of Bitcoin. Right? You don't stop Bitcoin for That's running. Fair. Bitcoin doesn't run at GitHub. Yeah, yeah. You don't really stop further development because every single developer can continue developing locally. What you stop is the coordination of future merges. So exactly. any developer who's got that full record can branch off of it, start coding new features, and do all that stuff local on their machine. Right. It's the coordination of their activities and, and, and other then, developers that merge those changes into one source of truth that's the thing that's impacted by that kind of uh, censorship. Got it. And in, in which case that's coordinatable by humans, you kind of have a stack chain environment. Yeah. And you could, you could, spin you, it up, you could spin it up on totally different infrastructure and totally different jurisdictions. I mean, think about how the, the nature of the internet is. There's always nooks and crannies somewhere that's kind of out of the reach of X government. That's cool. Thanks for entertaining my questions. Yeah. Because you know, when I hear something that's a potential attack vector, I want to dig in. It's just my nature. I want to know. Yeah. So the cool. Thanks for answering that. Git, Git is not the same thing as GitHub. 
That's the main thing to take away. Git is the protocol cool. itself. All right, let's hear from Paul Tarantino. Good morning, Paul. Welcome. Hey, man. Good, good morning, guys. Um, actually, Tomer uh, covered everything I was going to say, so I'll just say good morning, Bitcoiners. Happy to be here and uh, glad to uh, be able to add value when, when I can. Thanks. We're going to be doing some stuff with Paul future here uh, coming up. Uh, Paul runs a trust company, if I understand correctly. Maybe I'm saying it wrong, but is very involved uh, dealing with high net worth individuals and building trust structures um, and has interfaced with some of the leaders in the entire industry, in my view, uh, in terms of how to how to put those kind of things together. And we'll be talking more about that and in, uh, inheritance planning, all that kind of stuff moving forward. Uh, we'll probably be doing a series at some point um, and and deep dive all of that stuff. So looking forward to that. Good morning, Tone Vase. This is the longest period of time morning, I've heard guys. you've been silent on a panel ever. Yeah, well, because I, I don't I know I don't know anything that's happened in Bitcoin over the last 10 days because I was doing my event down in the Dominican Republic. So I'm just catching up on stuff, but I'm happy to comment on a bunch of things you guys have mentioned already. <laughs> How's the event? Dominican Republic. Went super well. It's freaking awesome. But yeah, but I have a biased opinion, right? Because I organize it. So if you run into someone that was there, uh, you got to ask. Well, it's only it was only fifty people there, which is the which is the actual size of the event. It's meant for fifty to seventy five people. Uh, but on the on the minor stuff, right? So, um, I, I look in in theory. There is nothing the government can do to stop Bitcoin. Uh, like, it's too expensive. It takes too much coordination for them to get a 51% attack going. Uh, in theory, they can't do it. In practice, this would be disastrous, right? And this is why I was arguing with many people that China banning mining is bad for Bitcoin. Uh, like, overall, I mean, because... I would rather deal with the FUD that that 90% of Bitcoin mining takes place in China. Like that was an easier, I slept better at night because China is adversarial to the US. And when China banned mining and the United States became the biggest miner country in the world, this concerns me because the majority of Bitcoin developers are in the US. The majority of Bitcoin nodes are in the US. And now the majority of Bitcoin mining is in the U.S. That's not decentralization. So I was actually happy if when all the mining was taking place in China, because if China tried to do something, then at least, you know, the developers in the U.S. could immediately release a coordinated, you know, proof of work change. And even that could be borderline dangerous, but there would be enough mining in the U.S. to, you know, keep Bitcoin secure from how much energy it burns. But now, I mean, the U.S. government isn't that stupid, right? If they do plan to attack Bitcoin, uh, they have another non-decentralized element to attack Bitcoin, and that is the concentration of Bitcoin is in the U.S. Now, we're not proof of stake. Having a shit ton of Bitcoin doesn't do anything, but confidence in Bitcoin's price is going to be gone if with one phone call, the U.S. government now owns all of Coinbase's Bitcoins and all of Grayscale's Bitcoins and all of Gemini's Bitcoins and all of Kraken's Bitcoins and all of Fidelity's Bitcoins, 
I mean, the, these are American companies and all of Michael Saylor's Bitcoins, you know, way too much concentration of Bitcoin in the United States, which the government can probably confiscate by putting everyone in handcuffs. The majority of developers are American. Uh, same thing, that the knock on the door will be coordinated. Uh, and this is my this was my concern from day one when China banned mining. I'm actually happy that there's still 20 to 25 percent of Bitcoin mining on the ground going on in China. Uh, that would make it challenging for the U.S. to uh, uh, to you know capture all, 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 all these miners. But no, no, these are concerns. I mean, Bitcoin should be more global. And uh, but my geopolitical views. Uh, I've been saying for years now that by the end of this decade, there will America will not be a single country. And what happened yesterday with the Trump raid, like every single month, there is a, a geopolitical, like there is a political event in the U.S. that that like makes me more and more confident in my view that there will not be a, that the United States will not be a single country. And that's the greatest thing ever for Bitcoin because now. The United States will not be able to do this attack if the if the United States becomes two or three countries. Like if you're a Bitcoiner and you actually want your like like Bitcoin to be unstoppable, uh, the U.S. needs to break up uh, because I think they can do this coordinated attack, and the price of Bitcoin will drop down to five hundred dollars. And while in theory we can say that's not a big deal, in reality that's a big deal. Let's talk about probabilities for a second. Like, uh, I'm not going to suggest that what you've just, the scenarios you've outlined have a 0% chance, but really what is the chance? I mean, something that Greg said the other day that, that I have stolen, thanks Greg, is some people are focusing on the hole and not the donut. And I, I God, I love that saying. <laughs> um, but, but there's like these three different areas you talked about here. We've talked about mining, you've talked about developers, you've talked about the Bitcoin itself, right? Isn't it true that if, like, who knows what's going to happen in the United States? I have no idea. Currently, you have most of the developers here, most of the Bitcoins here, most of the minings here. Why? Because, in my opinion, it's the, it's the environment most conducive to those things. The amazing thing about Bitcoin to me is that it's the honey badger. If any one of those areas comes under attack, won't it just move? I mean... If you think about developers for a second on the core protocol, does the core protocol need to change right now? If the core protocol stayed the same from now to to infinity, would that be okay? I don't know. I got my own. I'm, I'm starting to be more critical of core than I've ever been in my life. Uh, so, but that's a whole other discussion. I also haven't kept up with with that side. Okay, of fair enough. But can developers move? Does brain power move? Like if there's an environment that's not conducive, will will people move? Probably. Can the Bitcoin move? Yeah, it can. Well, is it possible that the government can capture some portion of it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if they're smart, and here's the other thing is, if governments are smart, they're going to be accumulating that shit anyway, right? They're not going to tell you. There's probably governments buying it right now. They're just not saying it. So... No, I don't... I don't I gold in 1933 they don't need to buy it they can just obfuscate it all with one phone call from all the centralized entities holding it Meh. that's fair but I, I that's the u.s right do you think there's other governments buying it yeah I do. 
Uh, probably, yeah. Uh, I would love to hear Greg's view on what I just said. Well, Tone, I put my hand up uh, because I actually wanted to uh, applaud uh, that, yes, that is an outcome. And I don't think that I really need to say any more than what, uh, you know, our host said, Alex, basically, that you have to put probabilities on all this. And, you know, I'm going to just stick with my um, analysis, which is to say that, I have a price target of Bitcoin that is over $2 million. And before you guys say, why am I so bearish? I have to tell you because it has to go to my target. It's not a limit. And then secondly, that you put a probability on that. And the probability the market is giving me right now, Tone, is basically 20,000 divided by 2 million is one in 100 or a 1% chance. And so let's say my target is... uh, I think my target's greater than 1% chance, okay? It may not be 100%, and I cannot possibly ever say that it's 100% in my mind, but I would say that it is at least a 40% chance. So just by that logic, it says that FOSS should buy Bitcoin up until a price of 800,000 US per Bitcoin. But aside from that, let's give your outcome a probability as well. And you know, you said a, tar- a, a a price of 500 bucks. Well, the funny thing is my 1% chance of it going to 2 million is basically a 99% chance that it goes to zero. So even your scenario, which is, uh, is it's bearish, but it's not above, it, it is above zero, plays into my asymmetry of the return calculation and i'm not going to be able to put probabilities on yours and you can't put probabilities on my target the point is it's a continuous distribution where the right tail the right hand side is a long tail that's what i look for in in investing is a long tail distribution and the left hand side is bound of the distribution is bound by zero or some would argue you know, Michael Saylor will buy it all at a price greater than zero. He said so. And so without trying to get too fancy tone, I, first of all, again, I love the fact that you're bringing it up because it is a risk. The truth is, though, my God, if that happens, I just can't even imagine living in the world that, uh, that we would live in. And in fact, it may make Bitcoin that much more valuable because we've lost all our freedoms then. And this is, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a sucking and blowing type of uh, analysis. So, Tone, look, I like the stuff you put out. Uh, you are a, uh, a very smart uh, individual in this community. And I always have to listen to people whose uh, information is different from the way, I, uh, the way I think. And it is a risk. How big a risk? I'll leave that for the market to decide. But at this point... Again, the market is telling me, Greg Foss, I'm only 1% likely to be right in my price target. And all I'm telling you is, people, I am highly confident that the right number is far higher than 1% that it reaches my price target. Hope that answered your question, Tone. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, no, 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 it did. It did. But your entire answer is, you know, from the financial perspective, from the price of Bitcoin perspective. And, uh, uh, yeah. Can I just say, though, that's how yeah. I, you know, in, in, if then we break it down and say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, then I don't measure it as far as uh, the price relative to, uh, you know, a clown currency or a shit coin called 
the U.S. dollar, right? And that shitcoin, uh, me calling the U.S. dollar a shitcoin carries a little bit of weight. How about when it's the weight of the billionaires that were on stage in Miami? One of the billionaires, I won't dox him too badly, but you guys can go up and figure out who it was, basically called the U.S. dollar a shitcoin, okay? Funny thing is that when a shitcoin... Uh, you know, issuing government does this to mo the most pristine form of money. You have to uh, imagine there would be tremendous social unrest and uh, it would basically, you know, I'm a Canadian that loves the USA and everything the USA stands for. Uh, it would, in my mind, uh, you know, blow apart the, the beauty of the United States, uh, the constitution and everything like that. So yeah, I don't want the USA to break up, Tom. I don't think it will. I understand the, the, you know, the Texas and, you know, the different areas of the United States, but I think that the, uh, the greatest uh, source of freedom we have left in the world actually still revolves around the USA. Okay. And that comes from a Canadian who's, uh, you know, fifth generation Canadian whose country actually is on the way to socialism and is being run by a, uh, you know, an absolute buffoon, but there you go. I mean, there, you have to align with, with where the best chances of, of retaining our, our global freedom are. And I still believe that to be the USA. So I'm a hopeful tone, but I'm not ignorant to the fact that you put out a real, uh, uh, you know, a real risk to the, uh, to the current status quo. Um, yeah, no, look, I, I definitely agree with you on Canada, right? And the, the U S is headed into the same direction, which is why, uh, my view is, unfortunately, uh, well, I agree with you that the United States is still, you know, the best country for freedom, but that is changing so quickly that half of the United States still having freedom is probably better than where the whole of the United States is going. But that's my geopolitical view. Uh, but, but again, going back to your entire, um, you know, reply was was more centered on the financial side of Bitcoin. And for me, what's most important is the, you know, Bitcoin actually changing the world um, socially. And of course, for that to happen, Bitcoin needs to have a higher and higher price. Otherwise, uh, why would anyone pay attention? So they do go hand in hand. But anytime I see stuff within the Bitcoin network that increases the percentage of the Bitcoin network not succeeding, even by a fraction of a fractional percent, it's not the right trajectory. Like you always want something, no matter how slow the trend is, and no matter how far away from you know the ultimate goal you are, the trend is uh, it, it's important. Like when uh, uh, again, I don't want to use too many geopolitical examples, right? But uh, my view is, you know, uh, uh, there's no good analogy here I can use right now. But um, yes, you're still far away from something, but you're trending in the right direction versus somebody else who is already there, but is trending in the, in the wrong direction. It's kind of like Russia, uh, China's GDP versus American GDP. You know, like even like 10, 15 years ago, people would like laugh. It's like, oh, what, China take over the world? Because they're not paying attention to the trend, right? Yeah, I know that the U.S. GDP is like 100 times bigger right now, but the trend is uh, not moving in the right direction here to maintain that. So so something like okay, that. Okay, I'm going so to... I'm going yeah. to stop you right there. What we're right. going to do, I think, I think, I think we get the point there. 
Um, this has been a great convo. We're going to hit announcements. Then we're going to go with Tomer. Then we're going to go with Paul. Uh, if you have points you need to make, Tone, to finish up what you're saying, we'll let you do that first, actually, uh, after the announcements. And then uh, we've got Jeff up here. Good morning, Jeff. We'll be talking to Jeff a little bit later about his views on what's going on with uh, price and macro, et cetera, as well. So it's really great that we have Tone and Foss up here uh, to do this at all at the same time. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning. Welcome. If you've never been here before, we talk about Bitcoin. We do this today. Monday through Friday, we start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, and we do it as a live show on Twitter Spaces. So you're welcome to join us for the live show. Uh, if you can't make the live show, we also have it on a podcast. It's on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks to our awesome producer, Jacob Pope, up here. Um, you can throw me a follower, Swan Bitcoin, to be notified of when those drop. The Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up in November. Don't miss it. It's going to be awesome. Go to PacificBitcoin.com. If you want to buy tickets, promo code CAFE, all caps, for 20% off. Uh, we have a Telegram group if you want to know all about the different types of events and things that are happening uh, during the week leading up to and some of the days afterwards as well. It's going to be a great time. Or a real opportunity to get some really intimate sort of uh, FaceTime directly with your favorite Bitcoiners. Maybe make some new friends. I, may, I've, I made lots of friends, met lots of Bitcoiners down in um, Miami this year. It was a great opportunity to just like put faces to Twitter handles and voices and get to know people in person. And like just a camaraderie is, is really awesome. And the, and the spirit of kind of love and all that kind of stuff that you get in person is, is pretty amazing. So I encourage all of you to be there. It's going to be a great time. Tone, did you have any uh, follow-up items you wanted to hit in, in re relation to the subject you were talking on there? No. Austin. Okay. Let's. Mute. Oh, was that, was that to me? Oh, no, no, no. So sorry, guys. I yeah, was, that uh, was to you. Yeah. No, did you no, have no, any? Did you have any follow-up no. items to that point you were making? Okay. Uh, no, let's no, go no, with... not really. No, no. Thanks for stopping me. I could have ranted forever. So uh, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Tone. I, it sounds like you may have a bit of a cold. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just, I'm, just, I, I'm just recovering from like a whole week of running an event. Uh, that's yeah. so, so, so like slow motion. Yeah. You've got you've got a fair bit of pessimism in uh, in what you said, and I there's I don't want to address each and every one of the points because it's it's too time consuming. But I I, I want to make maybe one slightly different point than what you made that I think puts everything into a, a context that I see, which makes me optimistic. Which is Bitcoin isn't built for the number to go up; it's built to survive pretty much anything, and it would survive like the price might go back and we've seen you know I, I i will point out we've seen the bitcoin price go down a lot numerous times in its history it survived every one of those things it never led to the abandonment of bitcoin um what and the reason is because it's built for maximum survivability if the government somehow did manage to seize a whole lot of bitcoin well what would they do they could sit on it they could sell it they could burn it eventually it's it's eventually they're they're depleted from it or they've chosen to value it. Um, and part of what you were describing was, well, you know, if they do do this, then this might lead to the end of the United States as we know it, it might break apart. It sounds like, it sounds like the United States is in more danger of being uh, broken apart than Bitcoin. So I think, I do think Bitcoin is. Yeah, I agree with that. No, I, I agree. I told I agree with that. There's a way high. I, I think there's a way higher probability that the United States uh, splits than the United States being able to destroy Bitcoin. Uh, but if the United States splits, 
that grossly increases Bitcoin's survivability because the United States is the only country that could even try to take Bitcoin down. So that so it's inter- like uh, there's so many interesting things going on, and uh, and I think it's hard. Um, I, I people have to study for themselves. Like for me, one of the biggest insights that I had that increased my conviction was that Bitcoin was going to outlast every country because countries come and countries go. Even if they last a thousand years, like Rome, they go. And uh, and Bitcoin isn't dependent upon any person, any regime, anything. It just like as long as the laws of physics and math stay the same, nobody's changing those. Bitcoin can continue to run. It might run with a lot less hash power. It might run with less purchasing power. It might run through a, a wrecked civilization. It might run through a glorious, thriving civilization. It just runs. It survives through everything. And and that, for me, is there's a time preference issue here. So we may not be, even be disputing or, or debating about the same thing. Like, I just, for me, this thing's going to be here long past, you know, for the rest of my life and long past it. That's not to say it's necessarily going to be worth in spending power, like, I don't know what the civilization is going to look like, so I don't want to rant on for too long. But I just wanted to, to switch the focus to survivability because it sounded like you were concerned about Bitcoin survivability. You know, the other thing about this entire subject is, I mean, doesn't Bitcoin have to sustain and live through of a a fully concentrated attack? even by the United States, for it really to be completely censorship-resistant and for us to know that? I mean, I'm not saying I want that to happen, but, I mean, at the end of the day, unless it passes that test, you don't really know, do you? Well, some tests, you know, you you may route around. So you, you may end up, you may end up never having to confront a test because the form of the attacker becomes an ally or changes but bitcoin will forever bitcoin is you know this notion of survivability which we also describe as anti-fragility bitcoin gets stronger the more it's attacked and the worst thing we could do to bitcoin is not have it be attacked like it's not really it's not in danger of that right now (laughs) but that would be like a thousand years of nobody attacking bitcoin might make it really soft and and it might make people using it unprepared for an attack but you know, that's that's for people a thousand years in the future to worry about, I suppose. Yeah, but also like some tests you don't really want to run. It's kind of like, um, can we test if humans can survive a full blown nuclear war? Like it's not exactly like, like a test that you want to test. It would be, you know, it'd be good to know. Uh, but it's, it's not a test you want to execute. It's also something Stacey Herbert once wrote in a, in a tweet. I forgot what she was replying to. But she's like, no, I don't need to teach uh, kids, the dangers of drunk driving by putting them drunk behind the wheel of a car. Uh, so, so there's just, there's just some tests you don't want to run if you can avoid them. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I, I hope it wasn't coming across like I was looking forward to being tested like that. <laughs> Come at yeah. me, bring it on. Come at me, bro. I, I think that's what, what you I got? Sure, give me your worst. Jeff Ross. Good morning. Jeff's hey, morning, Alex. Good morning, everybody. So um, you popped in here while we were <laughs> entertaining some of Tone's potential scenarios. Uh, a little off topic from, from what you're usually discussing with us, but do you have any, any thoughts or comments? Um, unfortunately, I missed the the initial part of what Tone was talking about, so I I don't really know what people are talking about. Uh, that's that's well enough. 
I, I don't know that we need to rehash it because we could probably talk about that topic for a long time and not really make any headway or come to any conclusions or solutions. Um, Andres, good morning. Did you have a question or something to add? Yeah, yeah, I do have a question. Good morning. Thanks for letting me on. Um, um, my question was about like peer-to-peer networks. Like, you, um, I mean, I'm, I'm 32, so I grew up in the era of, of BitTorrent, and essentially, you're able to download any software you want, like virtually anything. Uh, I work in the ar- architecture industry in Autodesk. It has a monopoly on, on like the software and literally like the newest like software that costs thousands and thousands of dollars a year. You can literally just go on a BitTorrent uh, client, find the, the torrent file and download it. So, I mean, I, I know that governments can, like, like Tone was saying, they can like clamp down obviously on, on all these decentralized like networks that hold your, your Bitcoin. But I feel like if they haven't been able to stop piracy and there's a ton of huge players within there, like, do you guys see like the government or any government in the world being able to, to, to just like prevent that? Like, I, I don't see a way because if, if the incentives are there for, for them to stop piracy and they just haven't been able to do it, like there's still billions and billions of dollars of revenue loss with software and movies and all the stuff you can get from BitTorrents that they haven't been able to do anything about it. You know, information wants to spread and information is easy to spread. Satoshi has a quote about this, right? That part of the survivability of Bitcoin is that it is simply information and it's very hard to stop the spread of information. And that's what you're speaking about. And so when you have the trifecta of Bitcoin, BitTorrent, and Tor, which which hides your nodes, there's a lot of protection and concealment and distribution of information. And that's why these things are very hard to stop. And in fact, you know, they've, they've maybe been slowed down or there's been little obstacles erected here or there, but they all, information ultimately flows around like water. It flows around obstacles that are set up to, to be barriers. And that's why we, we have seen so little success with digital rights management on software or music or, or other things. Eventually, everything was like, here, take it all for 10 bucks a month. We can't stop you. We'll just make it yeah. really convenient for you to get it and pay us a nominal yeah. fee. Can I comment on that real quick? The incentive by the government to stop piracy of some private company software and Bitcoin, they're not even close like to each other. It's like 100,000x uh, difference there. And like Tomer just said at the end, um, at the end of the day, just tell the, the, the software companies to, you know, like compete, you know, make it easier, make it better, make it so that it's not worth it to go and pirate stuff and get viruses, just $10 a month, use Netflix, you know, $5 a month, use Spotify. Uh, like, like it can be happening. But in this case, right, who's going to tell that? Well, like we're telling the government to compete. Look, the government can kill Bitcoin tomorrow. All they got to do is stop printing and all they got to do is remove money laundering laws. Boom, Bitcoin's done. Like it's not needed anymore, right? You remove all money laundering laws, which I think are immoral to no end, uh, you stop printing so much, and that's it. And uh, who needs Bitcoin anymore? Uh, the, this is the point. And governments are not going to do that. But like, like, like they're literally doing TEDx in the opposite direction. Thanks. Uh, those are all great points. Thank you. 
Hey, and uh, to, to add, and this is going to be a great segue for uh, Jeff Ross, I hope, uh, Tone, uh, they actually can't stop printing, okay? It's mathematically impossible, okay? So the cool thing is, yeah, in theory, they can stop printing, but then theory is theory. When you go to mathematics, it is actually mathematically impossible to stop printing, okay? So let's just remember that. Over to you, Jeff Ross. I, I need to learn something, and Tone, I, I learned a lot from you, so thanks for your... Uh, your stuff, buddy. No, thank you, Jeff. Sorry, thank you, thank you, Greg. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm like done. So <laughs> like ten in the morning. Thanks for coming. Let's start. Let, let's start digging into some macro stuff then. So, Jeff, what's kind of high level on your mind right now? Yeah. Hey, I, this has been like too optimistic of a conversation. So we, we want some, uh, some macro views to, to bring down the conversation. <laughs> Put everybody in a bad mood. Dr. Dr. Bear. Here we go. Do Dr. Rain on your parade. No, you know, I mean, things are ugly out there and they, then they continue to be ugly. Um, so, I mean, we can, we can take it into so many different directions, but, but right now small businesses are getting hammered. We saw as they reported results that their earnings uh, are way down uh, we're seeing hiring freezes all uh, across the USA, uh, which is impacting small businesses uh, the most. I think it's 98% of businesses in the United States are small businesses, so they obviously, you know, make up the majority of what goes on here in the in the U.S. economy. Although everybody focuses on the huge mega caps, um, it's it's rough out there. It, it, we're, but we're having this rally, right? We've been having this rally in risk assets since mid June. Um, and the question is, is this just a standard bear market rally or does this thing have some legs to it? And so we're actually, I was on with uh, Preston and Joe Carlosari and uh, Jay Gold last night on Preston's show. Uh, it's going to be released, I think, next week or something. But we were talking about this very issue. And um, here's kind of how I'm looking at it right now. I, I think that this recession basically, first of all, it's basically a textbook recession that we're heading into right now. And we can quibble over whether, you know, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, like we saw in Q1 and Q2, does that actually constitute a recession? No, because, you know, the, the NBER gets to decide uh, what, when an official recession is and unemployment is too low at the moment. But technically we've had two quarters of negative GDP. I say that it's going to get much worse sometime in the future. Why do I say that? Because uh, the Fed is raising rates and the yield curve is deeply inverted. And whenever you have that combination, we always have a recession sometimes after that. So I like to say at least where we are right now, I think a bad recession is inevitable, although it's not necessarily imminent. Um, so currently we're having this rally in risk assets. Um, I think it's a real rally. Uh, it's similar to how they, we had a rally back. If you look back from 2007 through 2009, um, what happened is we had sort of three phases to the, um, to the market. Now, if you give me just a second, I'll explain it. So the first part of this, the first third occurred from late 2007 to like the first through the first quarter of, um, 2008, we had a huge rally in commodities, especially with oil. Oil basically went parabolic way back then, if you guys will remember. And as that was happening, risk assets and equities in general, were uh, getting hammered. They had a pretty significant drawdown. That was phase one. Uh, phase two, uh, oil, the back of oil's uh, back was broken and it, and it started, it rolled over and it rolled over quickly and it dropped from its highs uh, pretty substantially. And um, the markets rallied. They said, sweet, we don't really have to worry much about inflation now. Um, the Fed has got this under control. It's, the economy looks ugly. 
Um, but I think we can get out of this. And so the markets rallied pretty good for about six months. Uh, they hit kind of a, a, a slightly lower high and then another slight lower high after that. But they still essentially rallied from that low point. And then phase three happened. Phase three was, oh, crap we're actually headed into a serious worldwide recession. There are serious problems. The credit markets are looking terrible. And the floor dropped out. And so oil crashed, equities crashed, and everything you know uh, went to heck in, a has- uh, heck in a handbasket, I like to say. So basically from the fourth quarter of 2008 uh, through the end, of, uh, or the end of the first quarter of 2009, uh, things were super ugly before we finally bottomed. So I think right now we're kind of in the middle of this phase two. Uh, the oil uh, reached its highs you know, in the 120s per barrel. Now it's down around $90 per barrel. Um, I think uh, the inflation has been a problem, but I kind of think that's already priced into the market. I think the market's not as concerned about inflation. I think they think, quote, the Fed has it under control uh, and that's not going to be much of a problem. So I think it's possible that we actually kind of continue to rally possibly um, uh, for the next couple of months. Um, and then and then at some point we're going to say we're going to hit this. Oh, crap moment. Oh, crap the economy actually is terrible and we're heading into a serious recession and things are going to get super ugly. And that's when I think the floor drops out again for risk assets. And I think oil continues to go lower too, like towards the 50 to $60 a barrel range. So that's my general overview. And I'm happy to talk about any different parts of this that we want to. All right. Quick question. Then uh, Peter's got his hand and then we'll go with Greg after that. But uh, for me, I was curious, you mentioned the job numbers is basically the offsetting thing. Um, in terms of defining it as a recession, do you think those job numbers are accurate? You know, accuracy is such a hard thing to discuss uh, with government figures. And I know that there's a lot of issues, like lots of these numbers are cooked, right? We know that the CPI numbers are, you know, inaccurate depending on how you measure them. But I will say that the markets take their cues off of these numbers. So whether or not it's measured accurately or there are discrepancies both in the CPI and in the jobs numbers, the markets take their cues from these numbers. So that's kind of how I look at it. And I, and I, my system is sort of based off of how the market will respond to the official numbers, whether they're accurate or not. Fair enough. Uh, Peter, go ahead. So zooming in a little bit, Dr. Jeff, uh, NVIDIA recently uh, revised earnings in a massive way due to uh, gaming chips. I'm wondering if you think that that is signaling um, uh, exhaustion with uh, consumer con- discretionary. Uh, yeah, possibly. But we also, like I said, I, I'm sort of long this market uh, currently, but with great trepidation. So with tight, tra- tight trailing stops. Um, I think that the supply chain issues are also very interesting. I think they're still we're still seeing them uh, on um, kind of the electronics and the semiconductor side. But other inventories actually are starting to build up pretty substantially. Um, you see that basically in Walmart and Target, when they reported their earnings, they were talking about they have actually too much supply now, way more. They ordered much more thinking that demand was going to be much higher. And now they have too much inventory. When you have too much inventory, that drives down prices. So it's, it's we're having really interesting dynamics going on kind of all across the board. All right. If that answers your question, let's jump to Greg. Hey, Jeff. uh, Great to talk to you again, sir. Um, So a couple of, well, firstly, let's talk about, you brought this up, Alex. It's interesting. The first time in my, uh, I'll have to go back a little while, but in my career where the Canadian jobs numbers were minus 31,000. 
okay, for the month of July, and the USA was plus 500 and something. Now, a rule of thumb is that it should be a 10 uh, multiple. So you could actually game the system by seeing at a time what the U.S. jobs numbers were going to be because Canada actually announced them before the uh, the USA. And, uh, you know, there was a trade that would always take the Canadian jobs numbers and multiply it by 10, and therefore you had a good uh, insight as to what the U.S. jobs number could be. I'm not trying to talk trading here. I'm just going to tell people I've never seen a divergent result where Canada is negative 31,000, which would imply a negative 300,000 USA print and it was the flip side to the positive 500 and what it was, 28 or something like that. Guys, there's going to be revisions in one of the two countries. I don't know which one, but it's very, un, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's I've, in the first time, I cannot think of a, a divergence like that. So it's just something to throw up. And employment is backward looking. So who really cares? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But Jeff, can... Jeff, can I just say one other thing? Yeah. And then, okay, it's your stage. The whole thing that you were talking about, this is important. Okay. When you were talking about markets and I need to put a pin in this markets rallied markets, credit never, ever, ever rallied from 2007 until 2009. Okay. Never. So always look at credit. We're talking about the idiot market here, the equity market. Don't put your faith in equities. Look what happens in credit. Okay. So what happened in 2007, Kramer, the idiot rant he went on, and actually it was quite prescient, uh, he went, the Fed has no idea what's happening. And everyone in credit was like, yes, it's true. But then the Fed cut rates and equities rallied and credit never did. The credit markets were basically calling out the Ponzi, the uh, mortgage housing crisis, subprime mortgage problems. 30 to 1 leverage at Lehman, which was really 60 to 1 when you had off-balance sheet items included. All I want to do, Jeff, is make sure that we differentiate between a pretend market, which is equities run by memers and all these people that really don't know how to manage risk, and credit. So please, people, look to the credit markets for real signals. That's all I'm saying. And let's, let's make sure we define which markets we're talking about. Because if you're looking to get signal from the equity markets, you're looking to a bunch of kindergarten kids that really prefer to go to strip clubs than turn on and do some real work about how risk assets should be traded. Okay, so over to you, Jeff. Please, though, people remember credit runs the world. It's staffed by adults and the equity markets are staffed by children, a bunch of preschoolers. They go to strip clubs at lunch and then do cocaine all afternoon. Sorry, but that's the truth. Thanks and good night. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> I love it, Foss. And I couldn't agree more, by the way. I, and I hope that comes out in what I'm talking about is I think you, if you want to find the truth about what is happening with the economy, you have to look at the credit markets and, and the equities markets. They, they are sort of um, 
uh, I mean, they just go by the flavor of the day, right? They're emotionally uh, involved and, and they, they climb walls of worries. Credit markets don't do that. Credit markets just do what the truth says they should do. And they also tell the Fed what to do, by the way. And we can talk about that kind of stuff too. Like the Fed raising rates, the federal funds rates, how high can they raise it? Well, you can basically go up as high as the two-year yield will allow you to, to rise. And then you can't go above that. Otherwise, the, the credit markets will, will bring you down and let you know you're wrong. Um, so those are the kind of things I follow and the cues that I follow. And I'm, I'm looking at that closely too, Greg. So thanks for making that point. All right, let's talk about timing. So you mentioned that um, may not be imminent, but like, what are we looking at here? So is this like um, this little rally is basically a trap, right? So, so interestingly, well, it depends what you mean by a trap. The trap can also go on for quite a while in equities because the equities can remain ridiculous longer than the truth can uh, remain pervasive. So basically what happens if you look back in history um, after the federal after the Federal Reserve stops raising the federal funds rate, it actually takes on average 21 months for the equities markets to bottom. So think about that. The federal, the Fed Reserve hasn't even officially yet stopped raising rates, although it's possible they have. They may get to the September meeting and say we're done. We don't know what they're going to do yet. But so, so say that was the last rate raise, uh, right? Like a, a week or two ago. Um, think, think about now. So 21 months from now, or a year and a half or so from now, that may be the bottom of the equities markets. That's kind of how these things work. It's my point of all of this, and what I've been trying to tell people is, this is not going to be another March 2020 moment. We're not going to have some sort of V-shaped, you know, rip down and then rip higher, uh, where the Fed suddenly pivots and suddenly the markets uh, reverse course and rip higher again. I think this is kind of the more standard variety, big recession, kind of like the great financial crisis and kind of like the dot-com bubble and bursting from 2000 to 2002. Those things last for a couple of years. And I think this is going to go faster than that, but I also think it's going to take quite a bit longer than most people are prepared for. All right. So you don't think that inflation is going to continue to rip higher uh, because of what? So I think inflation could remain somewhat sticky high, but I do think it's definitely at or near its peak right now. Why? Because they're the three largest components of CPI are uh, housing, transportation, and basically food. Um, and, and transportation involves the oil and energy sector. All of those things are still very elevated year over year, but the rate of change is what's important. And June was basically a peak for all of those numbers. So we're still having um, you know, high housing prices relative to a year ago, but they're lower than they were in June, relatively speaking. Same for gas, same for oil. Um, food as well. We all know that commodities have basically rolled over. So I do think we're basically at or near a peak. Now it could remain sticky high. And the two factors I'm looking at, it will remain sticky high unless the markets basically plunge. If the markets plunge similar to what they did at the fourth quarter of 2008 and early 2009, and by the markets, I mean the equities markets, Greg, um, just, just to be very clear, uh, when they plunge and panic ensues, what happens is that pulls everything down and you can actually have basically a deflationary event. So not just disinflationary where we see slightly lower numbers year over year, but you actually can see deflation if people panic enough and if basically business grinds to a halt. Uh, and everybody's sort of in panic mode, um, you can you can get those massive quick corrections in inflation. So I think either of those two outcomes are possible. We can have a, a super painful, fast uh, drawdown or kind of a slow grind lower that's kind of equally painful because it takes a long time. So we, we can sort of pick our poison at this point. Okay, so for the reasons that you've just given, given I know you don't see inflation ripping higher, but what if it did? Like, 
what what would you see unfolding if it did? Like, what is the Fed going to do and, and how are the markets going to react to it? So if it looked like, so if inflation, so say we get a 10 handle, right? We had 9.1. So say it hits 10 uh, when it reports the, the July metrics uh, tomorrow. Um, it's possible. Uh, and I think if it does, we're instantly going to see the bond markets correct. So we're going to see interest rates go higher. I think the yield curve stays significantly inverted, but everything just shoots up again. And basically what that's saying is the bond markets are allowing the Fed to consider raising the federal fund, funds rate even higher. Uh, right now, they're saying you can raise it up to about 3.25%. We'll give you that. Um, but if inflation is sticky high or even higher, they may raise that up to 3.75%. They may even raise it up to 4%. These are all temporary, by the way. So I just want to make that very clear. When when this happens, usually what happens is the Fed gets up to that point, and then it quickly will pivot and turn, and it will come back down again. They can't keep rates this high for long because of the massive amounts of debt we have. Uh, the debt payments just get to be way too uh, burdensome for our country and actually just completely unpayable. Um, so that's how I'm looking at it. We'll see what what tomorrow's print shows. We'll know a lot more after that. But if it does come in hot, um, I expect bond rates, the yields to rise even higher and they're going to shoot higher pretty quickly, in my opinion. You know what this makes me think of is is the uh, the 70s when inflation was just ripping and uh, it was ripping so fast, so far that Volcker eventually like I think he raised it to something like 15% or something like that. I, I know structurally that would probably be pretty much impossible to do right now. But like, I don't know. Could you see a, and, and I'm just kind of spitballing here because I'm curious. You Could you see a situation where inflation rages that much out of control and basically the Fed is base, is unable to stop it? Well, yeah, that's actually been my working theory for this decade for the last two years is I think this is going to be a decade of essentially stagflation. We're going to have a stagnant economy and we're going to be battling inflation like this entire decade. And it's going to be ugly. And and as Greg Foss again likes to mention, and I agree, um, inflation compounds. So the effects of inflation, they compound, they get worse. Just because, it, just because inflation maybe goes down from year to year, we don't get that back. We don't like if things don't get cheaper for us. They, they, they hit that new baseline level and then they go up, but they only go up a little bit higher the next year, but they're still much higher than they were two years prior. So I just think that this whole decade is going, we're going to be battling with inflation. And then we're going to have these random deflationary spirals that I think we're kind of getting close to again here. We, we, we've seen it down the markets have come down. Prices have come down. I think we may see that come down even more. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this, the S&P 500 is down 50% or 60% even from its, from its all-time highs uh, and NASDAQ a little bit more. Um, and then that resets everything. It's actually kind of healthy if you think about it, right? It lowers prices. It will see lower rates at that point. Uh, housing costs will come down. Commodity prices will come down. Uh, equities will be sort of fairly valued again instead of just exorbitantly valued like they have been. Um, so it's a good reset, uh, but it's super painful to live through. So that, I'm expecting some of that in the, in the, in the like coming year or so. Fantastic. All right. So I want to shout out to Lynn Alden in the audience. Good morning, Lynn. Throwing you an invite. You're welcome to come up here. Encouraged to come up here because you should probably be up here. If you can't come up here, all good. Understand. We're just talking about the macro thing, getting some inf uh, getting some thoughts from Jeff Ross here, Greg Foss, also Tone. And I think you'd be a great contributor to that conversation. All right, Jeff, what are we not, uh, what's on your mind that we're not asking you? 
Oh man. Um, well, that's tough, right? So everything looks really ugly out there. It, it's hard to say until we see these CPI numbers, uh, what kind of direction. So, so I wish we could talk about this exact same thing tomorrow after the CPI numbers are, are released and kind of go from there. But I think it's possible that we have this continued rally in risk assets. Um, I think the main thing that I watch as far as investing, and I, I posted this about a week or so ago because Dylan LeClaire and Sam Rule posted a nice chart in their uh, uh, Bitcoin Magazine Pro subscription. Um, it's basically showing the flows of liquidity. So the increases and decreases in liquidity from a worldwide perspective. And then how uh, they showed how Bitcoin performs and I would say how risk assets perform. So in general, when we're living in a time like we are right now, where liquidity is generally contracting, where banks aren't lending, where new money is not being created in general, Banks are battening down the hatches. They're, they're trying to preserve and protect themselves and not grow the economy and grow other businesses and things like that. Generally, when you see that withdrawal of liquidity, risk assets do very poorly. And I think we're in such a time as that right now. Volatility is generally higher. Um, people are kind of scared. They're battening down the hatches. They're moving to risk off assets like treasuries, like the U.S. dollar. So we're still in that and we still have to get through this. And again, I think this gets worse before it gets better. And then when we hit a bottom, that that will suddenly pivot and that will switch it back in the other direction Central banks will go back to sort of uh, supporting the markets through quantitative easing. Rates will go lower. Volatility will decrease. Liquidity will start flowing again. And then we'll see that flow into assets. So when we're in this situation, why do I bring all this up? So when liquidity is expanding, when we're in the good times, that's when you want to be in risk assets like equities, like small cap stocks, like tech growth stocks, like Bitcoin. Definitely. Bitcoin outperforms all of those, by the way, uh, during those good times. Um, but we're not in that time right now. So we're in a time where I think it's generally wise to be extremely cautious. So I think if for people and this is not individual investment advice. But the dollar does very well in these kind of situations, right? Um, uh, people clamor for the dollar. They sell their risky assets and they buy the dollar. U.S. Treasuries, long-dated Treasuries, tend to do pretty well in the short term. And again, I know, I know what Greg's thinking. You do not want to own bonds for the long term, right? Because you'll just get destroyed. Your purchasing power will get destroyed over time. But there are short-term periods where it's actually pretty smart to own bonds, where Treasuries can do pretty well. I think we're approaching uh, one of those times right now. So just be very careful when liquidity is being withdrawn, when it's a risk off type situation. And that's what we're in right now. You can see equities kind of buck the trend for a little bit and be stupid. Um, the stupid kids doing crack. Um, but at some point, uh, the truth comes out. The credit markets are, are right. Uh, and everybody battens down the hatches and everybody uh, gets defensive. And that's just the time where you want to be in uh, risk off safe haven assets. So hopefully that's coming through in the things that I'm talking about. Fantastic. All right. So if you want to stop in tomorrow, Jeff, you're welcome to as a kind of a follow up. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to have a pretty loose kind of uh, program. It's basically just going to be beginner Q&A. So it's going to be very easy, very, uh, very cash. If you want to come in and talk a little bit about that, you're welcome to as well. Let's open this discussion up a little bit. Uh, let's I'd love to hear Greg's thoughts on, on these topics. And then um, wait, can I see your hand up as well? We'll get to you in just one second. We'll go with Greg. And then let's open it up. If you're up on the panel, you have questions. If you're in the audience and you have questions, or you want to add something, uh, to the discussion, you're welcome to do that. You can also ask us questions on our Telegram group. That's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Uh, love to hear from you there. Greg, what do you think? 
<clears throat> yeah. So again, it's uh, well done, Jeff. Um, you know, what we need to be careful about is putting definitions on the table. Okay. And I need to be clear here that I believe that the Fed is right now in the process of pivoting. But the way I define that is that I do not believe that they will ever get to their 4.5% overnight rate or Fed funds target rate, okay? And the markets are basically saying the same thing. If you look at uh, OIS, if you look at uh, uh, the shape of the yield curve that Jeff has mentioned. So all I'm, what, what is happening here, because there is a, uh, a dual mandate for the Fed that's well-documented, which is basically uh, – employment and control of inflation. And that's a very tough, uh, uh, you know, those are almost uh, mutually exclusive in certain cases. But the third leg is not as much uh, talked about, and that's called financial stability, okay? And the reality is the U.S. dollar wrecking ball is, uh, is happening right now globally. And you're seeing countries that are absolutely getting decimated. So the results coming out of Germany, for example, it's the that Germany hasn't grown for five years. And right now their employment numbers are horrible. Their growth is horrible. Uh, and they are the thing that's holding Europe together. Okay. Because they're the rich, uh, they're the Northern neighbors supporting the Southern neighbors. So the global U S dollar wrecking ball is playing out as it's, as it always does. And here's the craziest thing. CPI is 9% and fed funds rate is two and a half percent. Stanley Druckenmiller recently said the Fed has never controlled inflation unless the Fed funds rate is over CPI. Okay, we're not going to 4.5% in my opinion, which means we're not going to 9%, which is CPI. It will destroy all financial stability in the markets. So where are we left? And this is hat's tip to Luke Groman, and I think... You know, I can't, I don't want to steal his thunder, but I will say that I agree with this outlook. A mode of financial repression where yield curve control comes into play and they change their targets on inflation. The inflation target goes from 2% to something higher so that the GDP can grow, nominal GDP can grow with inflation and yields are capped so that your debt spiral doesn't go out of control. Because Volcker, you mentioned this in the 1970s, Alex. Yes, Volcker was able to bring rates up to 15, 14 and 15%. And by the way, he didn't actually telegraph that to the markets. He just did it, okay? That's the beautiful thing. Whereas now we're all in kindergarten. We have to get a lawyer to tell us, you know, <laughs> I'm going yeah. to have a big press conference and then I'm going to have another press conference and then I'm going to unleash my Fed governors on you and they're going to tell you how, you know, it's okay to lose your job because my Fed governor will never lose her job, eh, Mary Daly? I mean, this is an absolute clown show. So point is, financial repression, people, it's the IMF playbook. It basically means QE infinity. And Jeff, I'm going to summarize it like this, okay, bro? All paths lead to Bitcoin. Don't get too fancy. Insurance is FFFFing cheap right now. Don't get too smart by a half. I'm stepping down. Lynn Alden, please come up, take my spot, and bring some really <laughs> smart people. Okay. Bring some really smart people. Okay. Thank you so okay, much, everyone. I want to make I'm it leaving. clear. 
Greg, you don't have to step down. We have enough room on the stage. Lynn can come up here. By the way, in a final kind of attempt to get Lynn Alden on the stage, I'm going to plug her recent article. It's up on Swan Bitcoin right now. Uh, it's a look at the Lightning Network. This was retweeted by Michael Saylor. It's fantastic. If you want to know a ton about Lightning and all the reasons why, well, I'm going to put it in my words, why shitcoins suck, uh, you need to read her article. All right, Lynn, throwing you another invite. You can come up here. You really can. It's okay. Uh, Wicked, what do you think, man? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the headlines that came out today was, you know, this this uh, senior commodity uh, strategist at Bloomberg. I think his name is Mike McClone. Um, he did an interview with uh, Cointelegraph. I don't know when that was, a day ago. And he, he was saying that he, he believes Bitcoin may transition to a risk-off asset um, as early as the end of this year. So I was wondering, Jeff or, or Greg, kind of what your thoughts are on that happening. And if it did happen, you know, how would that kind of update your, your thoughts and your models? Because I think a lot of what you, what you say, Jeff, is uh, with Bitcoin considered to be a, a risk-on asset. But what if the world kind of changed their view on it? Yeah, well, that's a good point, and I'd love to hear Greg's opinion and tones as well, and whoever. But um, well, first of all, I think we all understand that Bitcoin truly is the world's ultimate risk-off asset, right? Those of us who talk about it and who understand it know what it really is, but the majority of market participants clearly do not. Um, so, I while that's optimistic and sort of encouraging to hear that dude say that, I think we're a really long ways away from that. Personally, um, I think the world still thinks of it a as crypto and b as um, like a tiny tech stock. So it drives me nuts. So that's what I spend all my days every day trying to tell people: Bitcoin is not crypto. They are not the same. Bitcoin is not a tech stock. Bitcoin is simply better money. Why is it better money? And then go through you know my whole litany of reasons why it's better money. Um, so I still personally think we're like four, five, six years or more away from the world understanding what Bitcoin really is. I hope it happens that fast. If it did, that would be fantastic. The, the downside of that, though, and the reason why I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon is I think risk assets, sort of what I was talking about earlier, risk assets are what people pile into when the Fed is doing their printing, right? When QE is happening, and by the way, I say Fed doing their printing loosely, they don't actually own money printers. But so when the Fed is supporting the markets, right, when it's a risk on type environment and uh, volatility is low, people uh, pile into risk assets. So as long as people still think that Bitcoin is a risk asset uh, because of its volatility, they're going to pile into it. And I think that's actually what's going to propel Bitcoin well beyond six figures, well beyond 100K uh, in the coming years is because people are going to pile into it once once we've bottomed and once the central banks are supporting the markets again. But we're still a ways away from that. Isn't there more money in the risk off sector than the risk on though? Sure, eventually, but it's going to take a while to get there. I think because Bitcoin is still in the where it's in the collectible state right now, right, and it's a store of value kind of thing. I think as that grows and builds, we're going to see it rapidly increase in size and scope and use cases over the coming years and over the coming decades. And then at at some point, it turns into a risk-off asset in the majority of market participants' minds. It becomes much more stable, much less volatile. Uh, And and that's how I see it. But I still think we're many, many years away from that. So, Jeff, and to add, look, you're the market, you are correct until the market. So my thesis that Bitcoin is insurance is wrong at this point in the eyes of the market because insurance products should be increasing in value at times like this. The insurance product being credit default swap, 
the equivalent of a credit default swap on a basket of central bank, central banks and central bank currencies. The point, though, I'd like to make is when it happens, people, it will come from the credit side of the market where people who own bonds that are just a fiat contract that are programmed to debase understand, wow, I'm the sucker in the room. I have to actually own insurance against the mathematical certainty that fiat will debase. Greg, so when you say when in it, the room, like Greg, when you yes. say it, when it happens, what do you mean by it? What are you talking about? It when it happens. The when when the re, the reverse when when Bitcoin becomes a non-correlated risk asset, meaning it is a risk off. It's insurance. It goes up when volatility goes up. It doesn't go down when volatility increases. Okay, so. The guys, the credit guys, like Golden Tree Asset Management, okay, one of the smartest hedge funds, credit hedge funds I've ever known, Jeff Tannenbaum, oh, sorry, Steve Tannenbaum at Golden Tree, the guy is brilliant. He owns Bitcoin. He's a credit hedge fund. When credit hedge funds start following other credit hedge funds into the Bitcoin square, and remind, uh, remind you, credit is the largest asset in the world, that's when you see Bitcoin decouple from the children's risk assets and the children's risk assets, once again, are equity. So now I'm really stepping down. God bless America. Thanks so much. And Jeff, keep doing what you do, man. I love you. The Oss brothers, uh, Oss, Ross, Foss and Moss. Okay. Thanks guys. Leaving. Woohoo. <laughs> God bless Canada. Love our Canadians. All right. Um, uh... Jim, hey, good morning, brother. Good morning. Thanks, Alex. Um, this is always such a great conversation. I've been listening, and then all of a sudden I got this larger macro question for Dr. Jeff. Um, you guys are always discussing the macro perspective from all the different financial uh, instruments out there and the people that control all those. And we have this other implosion around the world going on with the ESG narrative and governments cracking down on farmers and all this stuff. And I don't hear you um, throwing that, the examples of those things into the analysis of financial risk and, and what might be coming. But I guess my question is, are those things already priced in as you're describing your analysis? Are the people that are taking action looking at those things as well and you're, you just don't need to discuss it or, or highlight it or, or showcase it in, in the discussion as to how that might affect things, because clearly it seems like it's going to. Uh, and I just was wondering how how much is that calculated in to your perspective and the, the general perspective of those analyzing markets like Greg, like Tone and people like that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question, Jim. I, I think a lot of people think of investing and trading in terms of narratives they think a lot about like what are politicians going to do? What, you know, what is what are the effects of ESG going to be on different sectors and things like that? I think that those can have um, effects, but to me, they're they're more like um, you know. I, I think you can you know we talk about bull bull markets and bear markets, right? Like a bull market and then the ESG narrative coming onto it is sort of like flies sort of uh, 
being pesky around the, the face of a bull or the face of a bear or landing on the bull or the bear. They don't really have that much impact in general to, to the way markets move. I think markets predominantly move based on what is the economy as a whole doing, what is inflation as a whole doing, and what is the Fed doing in response to that kind of stuff. Um, if, if you have like, say they pass a bill that has a massive effect on the economy, like it will, you know, grow the economy by one or two or 3%, you'll see a GDP boost because of something that Congress passes, then yeah, that would show up in the data and that would show up in the markets. But almost everything that politicians do is just more of a narrative and it, and it doesn't really affect, uh, the underlying metrics that much kind of, especially in the near term. Um, over the long run, they can definitely influence things, right? They can continue to give, you know, uh, credits to Tesla and to other electronic uh, electric vehicle makers and sort of push the society more quickly in that direction. And you, that does have investment implications uh, for sure. Um, but in general, it does not really affect the uh, GDP and inflation, those kind of things. And I think those are the things that really move the macro market. So they move major asset classes. Um, so the short answer to all of that after that really long answer is that I don't pay much attention to those kind of things. I just follow what the data is showing for the economy, for inflation, and then and then the markets tend to move predictably uh, based on what those factors are doing. Hopefully that, that was awesome. Question. Yeah, that was really helpful for a guy like me trying to figure out why am I not seeing that fit into this discussion? But you made it very clear for me, at least. And so thank you very much. I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on that as well. I was going to say something similar, just not as detailed, that I don't think its effects on the market are all that big either. Uh, if you you know zoom out a little bit more, the real concern on what's going on with the farmers is that the average age of a farmer is like 80. Right. And like thousand year old skills of farming are like on the verge of dying. And this ESG narrative and what like, you know, the World Economic Forum and all these other evil organizations, all they're doing is just slowly speeding up the inevitable, which is a collapse in farming because of the knowledge skill set and the takeover of that land by the elites. Uh, they're just speeding it up a little bit. You know, Bill Gates wants to own all the land before he dies. Bill Gates is only 66. Schwab is 84. Uh, he's driving that bus. So I don't like the fact where this is going, and they're just speeding it up. Uh, but um, hopefully there'll be some other solutions, but that, that's the concerning part. I think what's happening in the Netherlands is going to... Uh... Might uh, it might be a good indicator as to how this kind of stuff will play out because that's the first place I think that, that they're really really aggressively going after the farmers and trying to take their land from them, um, and how human beings stand up to this, uh, whether they actually allow it to occur or not, is going to be very instructive in my opinion. I don't know who's next, whether it's Peter or Swaranji. You guys uh, be gentlemen, figure it out. Hey, uh, Dr. Jeff, a uh, quick question. One thing I haven't heard uh, in, in this analysis is the housing market. And I think we're starting to see some, some small cracks. Um, I know that new house inventory is extremely, extremely high right now. And the San Francisco market is starting to experience, uh, uh, you know, deceleration, at least in, in the cost of housing there. How, how do you think housing plays into this into this uh, this macro kind of analysis that you're you're discussing? 
Yeah, good question, Peter. I brought it up a little bit earlier about why I think that inflation has probably peaked because housing is definitely rolling over. It's kind of following a textbook recession type approach. I like to be really clear with people. I don't think we're in another uh, GFC, uh, great financial crisis or global financial crisis that we saw, uh, especially in housing, right, from 2005 to 2010 with the subprime mortgage crisis and all those kind of things. We're not facing another one of those types of situations. But I do think that housing is definitely rolling over. As you said, inventories are starting to pile up. Prices are coming down substantially. Um, I think that is going to continue for quite a while. Uh, real estate tends to be sort of a slow mover. I saw another data point earlier today that you know uh, rent prices are significantly increasing year over year as well. That's starting to catch up. Um, I just think it's going to be more of the same, and that will add some more disinflationary pressure uh, to the CPI in general. Um, so, you know, in general, though, this is a good thing. Housing got way out of hand, right? There's no reason why housing should ever appreciate 20% on average across the country uh, in any country in a, in a year, uh, unless it's just been way down the year before. Um, that's just way too high. And it's, it's pricing people out of the market. First time homebuyers have almost no ability to actually buy a house. Uh, and, you know, a lot of pri- there's a lot of private equity uh, and institutional ownership in the real estate markets, and they've driven up the prices. So that's good for them. Uh, but it's terrible for like real people that actually need a house to live in. So I think this reset is healthy. I think at the end of the recession, whenever it is, maybe you know six months, nine months at the very earliest to maybe a year or even two years from now, I think we're going to see much lower mortgage interest rates and we're going to see much lower prices and housing affordability will be much better than it is today. So I'm looking forward to that. But if you're a real estate investor, I think it's going to be kind of a painful slog for the next year or two. It's been interesting how many um, people have been coming to Swan Private as basically real estate investors, real estate developers who have had similar sentiments. I've heard this on a handful of occasions now where guys are, they're like, um, we're looking at what's happening. We've been in, in the industry for some of them decades. And they're like, I think it's time to pivot. And by pivot, I mean, they're looking at at maybe even getting out of real estate as a business uh, and moving heavily into Bitcoin and kind of waiting to see what happens uh, over the next couple of years. So I, I, I found it, it's anecdotal, but I found it I found it really interesting. Um, all right, so we're coming up towards the end of the show. We'll go with one more question from Swaranji, and then um, maybe get some closing comments and move towards wrapping up. Swaranji, good morning. Morning, morning. Uh, always great to hear, uh, Doctor Jeff. Uh, quick question was. You know, I, I heard you saying that we're uh, in for like a decade of stagflation, but at the same time, you know, our debt to GDP is so high, 130%. So, uh, you know, the next QE is going to be really big, bigger than what we've ever seen before. So how do you uh, how do you resolve these two uh, with, the, you know, uh, them turning on the currency printer and uh, the risk on assets should be skyrocketing versus the stagflation? How do you resolve these two? Yeah, great question. So they're actually not uh, necessarily the same thing, right? So we can have a generally stagnant and poorly performing economy for many years, and we can also have high and sort of uh, volatile inflation, kind of like what we had in the 70s where we saw spikes and then it came down and then spiked back higher. And the Fed was kind of battling that throughout its course. But I, I agree with you that I think we're going to be more and more accommodative uh, from, from a central banking perspective throughout this decade. So that's why I see we're going to see these major asset bubbles uh, with intermittent deflationary busts. And, I, and like I said, I think we're on the cusp of another deflationary bust right 
now. So these asset prices have gotten so ridiculously high. I think they're going to come down substantially and become affordable again. We're going to set a new baseline once we bought them, and then they're going to take off again. And, and Bitcoin, by the way, is going to basically, I think, outperform all other asset classes. But we're going to see real assets spike. We're going to see real estate inflate again, you know, spike again. Um, stocks are going to go up again. And then we're going to have another huge bubble that's going to have to be pricked, and we're going to see another deflationary bust. So to me, all of this goes hand in hand. And I think it's going to be that the public is going to be fascinated watching what the Federal Reserve is going to do, you know, trying to battle inflation. I think, by the way, another thing that's going to make inflation worse is we're going to see more direct transfer payments. So basically, the government doing fiscal uh, actions to help support um, this income inequality and in the, in the people in the lower income echelons that are just totally getting hammered right now, uh, we're going to see more direct payments to them. They're going to get uh, they're going to get money uh, directly into their bank accounts. And that, I think, has a, a very material effect on uh, prices. So we're going to see the prices of goods and services continue to rise generally over this decade. Um, because of that. And I think that's going to get worse before it gets better. I think it's, it's hard to argue that, that that didn't have at least a pretty significant effect. All of the money that was handed out since uh, after the March 2020 um, debacle and the, and the year after that, lots of transfer payments were given. Uh, and, and then in addition, we have obviously supply-sided issues. But that has, has directly, I think, led to uh, these higher prices that we're facing today. So basically a decade of this, a decade of the Fed battling, a decade of government handouts, a decade of asset uh, increases because of massive quantitative easing, and then we're going to be intermixed with these huge deflationary busts. I think at the end of this decade, people are going to be like, what the heck was that? They're going to feel like they just got off of a huge roller coaster, and valuations are going to be kind of about the same. Uh, and, and in terms of purchasing power, people are probably going to be poorer 10 years from now than they are today, even if their uh, brokerage accounts are a little bit higher. Um, it's going to be a rough decade for, for most asset classes, I think. So in other words, buy Bitcoin. Absolutely. Yeah. Not individual investment advice. But to me, I look around all the time at these kind of things in different asset classes. And all jokes aside, Bitcoin is cheap right now and stocks are still expensive and bonds are still expensive. Uh, real estate is still expensive. Bitcoin is, I think, based on the metrics, I use dirt cheap right now. So again, not individual investment advice, but that's what I'm doing with my own money and for my clients is I'm getting into Bitcoin while it's cheap personally. Dirt cheap. All right, closing thoughts. Any closing thoughts, Tone? Now? Uh, no, no, I'm good. This has been a great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Jim, did you have something? Uh, yeah, actually, I was uh, just back to what Tone, uh, Tone was saying when we were discussing the farmers, uh, you know, and the effects that things like ESG are having on the, uh, you know, certain industries and whatnot. I just wanted to plug uh, Texas Slim and the Beef Initiative uh, for those of you who don't know what's going on, but there's a push now by him and a bunch of people to get back to the soil is, is like the term he uses, meet your local ranchers, your lo local farmers and develop uh, relationships with them so that your food supply won't get disturbed by this larger agenda of the government's trying to control everything. So uh, I, I see this as one of these things that the Bitcoin community, you know, looking far down the road and saying, you know, just just in case it might play out that way, we better get started on a way to resist that. And I think his initiative is an awesome one. It's growing. Lots of farmers are signing up and the connections are being made. You can now order 
all kinds of produce directly from individual farmers and have them shipped to you. And this is getting built out in a time when it's needed. And I just think it's, it's awesome. Just one more thing that I feel like Bitcoin helps improve. So thank you. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I was just really quickly, uh, I was out at dinner the other night with a rancher and at dinner, uh, another friend of ours, um, I showed her how to install a moon wallet and I shot her some sats right there on the spot and this guy's eyes were like, he couldn't believe it. No banks, no visa, no no nothing in between. Like no one's permission. We just exchanged value right there on the spot. And it happened instantly. And when I showed him that it costed me, so I sent her a hundred bucks uh, on lighting. It costed me 20 cents. His eyes, man, you should have seen it. And I explained to him, I said, yeah, there's this thing called the Beef Initiative where uh, there's this guy's going around teaching ranchers how to do this directly with the people. And they're creating, uh, they're building their own um, processing facilities, completely taking that middleman out of the distribution network, which is really where, where a lot of these guys are getting screwed. So he was all about that. And um, just average people, guys, when they see what this thing can do, it's, it's really, I think, eye-opening. Uh, we'll let Jeff make... Decentralized network of, of ability for people to purchase beef. Exactly. Um, Wicked, did you have something? We'll let you go if you do, and then we'll let was, Jeff make final comments and close up. I was just going to say real quick, it's kind of funny, like, when you're sending 100 bucks on Lightning, it ends up being a higher transaction fee than if you, than if you send it on the base layer, at, at least if the mempool's cleared, right? If you pay the lowest transaction fee on the base layer, it's like $0.05 cents for 100 bucks. That's all. Jeff, any final thoughts? Closing sure, I'll, I'll, I'll come full circle to kind of where we started, and that is that the credit markets, the bond uh, markets, the yield curve are they're 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 the truth, right? What they're showing is that uh, a recession is coming, like a serious recession. It's I think inevitable at this point, though it's not necessarily imminent, meaning it may not happen today or tomorrow. Uh, it may take a while before it sets in. I think right now we're in the sort of eye of the storm. So. What were we talking about? Equities have been rising. They've been rallying since mid-June. I think what we've seen is the transition away from the, the um, concerns, the serious concerns about inflation uh, uh, being rampant and running away from us to now we're kind of in the eye of the storm, like, oh, good, phew, it looks like inflation has maybe peaked or is close to peaking. It's not going to spiral out of control. So risk assets are rallying. But I think I really think there's a part two to this, and I think part two is going to be worse than part one. And I think that what's going to happen in part two is that people are going to realize we're heading into a deep recession. The economy is going to contract much more deeply than it has currently, uh, and not just in the U.S., but basically around the world. There's going to be kind of a global synchronized <laughs> recession, uh, and it could get ugly. So I just tell people to be very careful. It's it's not uh, it's not a bad idea to you know hold a little more cash than you normally do. Um, assets, most assets are still, I think, overvalued. Uh, I, I ran through those earlier, uh, so I won't do that again. Uh, and then in the long run, um, you know, Bitcoin looks cheap from a long-term perspective. It could go lower. Uh, personally, I think a great strategy is just a dollar cost average. Uh, and then to hold on tightly and have a five or 10 year time horizon and, and just try to get through these tumultuous times. And I think if you can do that, you'll do really well. Awesome. And buy Bitcoin. They're cheap by Bitcoin. All right, then. That's pretty much a wrap. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day. 
the place for your morning news, a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill, talk about what's going on. Uh, we do this as a live show on Twitter Spaces, 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every day, Monday through Friday, roll for two hours. If you can't catch the live show, you can catch the podcast. It's up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you get your podcasts. Throw myself a follow or Swan Bitcoin to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, sponsor of the show. My crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life. Producer Jacob, I am your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more about Swan, I am happy to help you. You can shoot me a DM. You can think of Swan as like your co-pilot, your partner, your wingman. We got your six. Like education is super, super important to us. There's an ethos with the company that basically says, do what's best for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners and everything will flow from that. It's an awesome place to work. I'm not going to lie. Also, you should be our client. If you're not, you should be. I'm just going to leave it at that. Thanks to all the speakers. Jeff, thanks for coming. Tone, everybody who comes in here on the regular. Greg, if you listen to this later, appreciate you guys. And all the regulars up here, obviously. Throw these guys a follow. Because what we're doing in here every single day is we're bringing this bright orange future to the rest of the world to the best of our ability. We call that getting on the mission. You should do it too. If you don't understand what it is or why you should do that, just hang out in here. You'll figure it out. Love all of you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today. Crush it. <laughs>